Amen. Awesome. You can go ahead and pass the offering buckets. While they're doing that, if you have a Bible, you can op- open up to Hebrews chapter 8. Last year for Mother's Day, I preached this really theologically intense message about Job, and then I felt bad about that, so I preached a, I preached a Mother's Day message last, last, this year. So this year, I'm doing, I'm doing this message on Father's Day. I promise next year I'll, I'll do something about dads, all right? But I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to teach you this. We're, we're in the middle of this series uh, that we're trying to learn how to establish our hearts in grace. Hebrews 13 verse 9 says that you don't want to be carried away with a bunch of strange doctrines, but you want to have your heart established in grace. That's what the song really is about, having our heart, uh, or your love is a firm foundation. There's lots of doctrine out there that is good doctrine, but it's not meant to be the, the foundation of what you believe. And many people have built their lives on, on, you know, things like, not to be critical, but things like the gifts of the Holy Spirit or um, uh, eschatology, which is the study of end times, or, or, how to, or intercessory prayer. And I love all those things. I'm not against any of them, but, but those are not the foundation of my relationship with God. Those, a lot of those are about things that I do. And if the foundation of my relationship with God has something to do with what I do, then my life with God is going to look like this. Because I don't know about you, but my performance waxes and wanes. I do better and I do worse. Now, the overall trajectory is I'm doing better, thank God. And I'm living more for God than I ever have, but I'm not perfect, and if I were to base my relationship with God on my performance, my relationship would be very unstable. And in fact, that's how it was until I found grace. And that's the doctrine of grace is what's empowered me to be a a minister and fulfill my destiny. Before I understood grace, I knew I was called into the ministry, but I looked at my performance and I said, well, I I can't merit this. I can't be worthy in my own flesh of, I mean, how am I going to tell people what to do? I can't even, you know. And, but, but, the, but the reality is that the gifts and callings of God are not based on your performance. Now, if I just went and did a whole bunch of sin, God would have to remove me from this position. So there's a balance to everything. But, but at the same time, it's not like I've merited, uh, you know, it's not, it's not like God looks at you and says, well... You, you worked so hard, now you can be a pastor. It's all by grace. Paul said, it's by grace I am who I am. So sometimes people ask me, how do I, how do I get into the ministry or how do I become like a five-fold minister or something? And, and if, you're, if you're called to like Ephesians 4, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, if you're called to one of those things, it's, it's really it's something who you are. It's like how you, you're wired. And it's a, it's a free gift. And so what you do is you just, you just develop it until you get to a point where you're able to, to minister to people effectively enough that, um, that you're doing it all the time. So anyway, I've got to stay focused here if I'm going get, to get through this. So I've stressed in the past couple of weeks that God has forgiven us and is not punishing us for our sins. 
Um, this is not because of a whim of God. So it's not like God's in heaven saying, well, I'm going to punish person A, but I'm not going to punish person B, and he's, he's doing stuff at random. He has made a covenant with us that he's going to take away our sins. And he says this in Hebrews 8, verse 12. Let's read it again. It says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no more. So that's really encouraging. This, this is not just a random statement. It's saying, I'm, he's saying, I'm going to make a blood covenant. And whereas we read a few weeks ago in Leviticus 26, he said, under the law, the provision of the covenant is, I'm going to punish you for your sin. That's how the law was. And that's why the, law, that's why the Old Testament looks like it does, because God was actively punishing people for sin. That's why the ground opened up and swallowed the sons of Korah. That's why fire came out of the altar and consumed Nadab and Abihu. That's why Elijah called down fire from heaven and burned up these soldiers. It's not random. It was the result of that covenant that they, that they were in, that they signed in blood. Well, there's a new covenant now that was effected, enacted by the blood of Jesus. And the provision in this covenant is that your sins are forgiven and, and God's not remembering them. So that's really encouraging. And if you look real quickly, John 1.29, Jesus is coming down to see John the Baptist, and John the Baptist sees him, and it says in verse 29, the next day John sees Jesus coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. When he's saying that, he's referencing Passover. If you remember the story of Passover, the Israelites are in Egypt and there's these ten plagues that have come on Egypt and they are uh, culminating in the death of the firstborn. But to protect God's people, God says you got to take this lamb and you kill it and then you, you put the blood over your doorpost. And the death angel would look at that and the judgment would pass over that house. Now you've got to understand that, that the punishment passing over had nothing to do with how good those people were living in the house. Moms and dads were probably yelling at their kids. They were probably yelling at each other. There was probably dissension. There was, you know, they were trying to pack for a trip. Any parent ever packed for a trip with a bunch of kids? This is, but this is a trip that you're not coming back from. You're leaving. So there's, there's, I'm sure, lots, much consternation inside the houses. But, but the protection isn't based on that. It's based on the blood being over your, your doorpost. What's that signify? That there's a covenant with God and God has promised, I'm going to protect you and my wrath's going to pass over you. Well, Jesus died on Passover. And the symbolism there is he's the Lamb of God and he's, he's protecting his people. Now you've got to apply the blood to your life. That means you've got to, you've got to put faith in Jesus. And, and, then, and then the wrath of God is permanently passed over you. Let's read some more scriptures that say that. Colossians 2 verse 13, I'll just quote that one. It says that God has forgiven you all trespasses. That's the last part there. It says... You being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, 
Hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you how many trespasses? All trespasses. Look at Isaiah 54. I know that Isaiah is in the Old Testament, but Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about Jesus on the cross as a suffering servant. It very clearly puts this uh, into a picture of what Jesus is going to do. And then Isaiah 54 talks about what's going to happen in the new covenant. And he says this in verse 9, This is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be wroth with you, neither rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, says the Lord that has mercy on you. Well, that's really encouraging. He says, I'm going to make this covenant. And, and, now, he, and he says, it's going, to be just like, it's going to be just like the waters of Noah. We had all this flooding. How many of you were affected? I mean, we had all that rain. I mean, it just kept raining. It was crazy. How many of you were concerned that the whole earth was going to flood? Hopefully none of you, because if you'd read the Scripture, God made a covenant, a promise, that He wouldn't do that ever again. So what's that mean? It means when I'm looking at the rain, if I don't know the covenant, I could look at the rain and I could start to think, wow, this looks really bad. This looks like judgment. But is it judgment? No, because I know he's, he's not going to do that again. Well, he says in your life, you might have mountains being removed. You might have negative circumstances. You might have scary stuff occur. You ever see a mountain move out? I mean, there might be a major earthquake or something. And you might look out about your life and you might think, this, is, this, this looks like judgment. But he says you're not supposed to fear that because this is just like the waters of Noah. God's promised that's passed over you. And so all this negative stuff could, could be around me and I can have peace knowing that God is not punishing me. So let's just all say this again. God, God is, not is not punishing me for my sin. Now that should be really encouraging. Now I've, I've belabored that point. Now some people say, well, what about consequences? Well, there are still consequences for sin. Galatians 6.8 says if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you rob a bank, you're going to go to jail. Even if you're a Christian. The government doesn't care. But if you go to jail, is God the one punishing you and putting you there? No, the U.S. government is. It's a natural consequence to your bad decision. So it's still wise not to make bad decisions. But it's not God punishing us. Okay, now, if all that that I have said is true, then we're left with a difficult question, which people ask. And so I want to deal, we're going to get, everybody say the nitty gritty. We're going to get, we're going to try to answer a difficult theological question. And it's going to take me a little bit to get to show you this. Uh, when you answer questions like this, there's, there's risk that, that people think you're removing all mystery. There's, there's always some mystery in life, and I don't pretend to know everything. Okay? 
But I do think we can understand this. So the question is, if God is not punishing us for our sins, what is the deal with Ananias, Sapphira, and Herod? Because if you know your Bible, in Acts, these three people, Ananias, Sapphira, and Herod, all die apparently by the judgment of God. And that's post-cross. So what people will do is they'll listen to me teach this stuff about, about how God isn't punishing you, but then they'll read that and they'll stress out that maybe God is punishing you. So I'm going to try to remove that concern. So in the interest of time, I'm not going to read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I'll summarize it. But first, let's just read, let's just read about Herod because I think this one's really clear. It's Acts 12 and uh, verse 21 through 23. It says, And upon a set day Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, he sat down on his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It's the voice of a God and not of a man. So there were a bunch of suck-ups in the audience. (laughs) And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten up of worms and he gave up the ghost. So secular history says like he, he got suddenly worms like grew out of his belly. Really gross. And it says the angel of the Lord smote him. It says that, right? And so that's distressing because that seems to fly in the face of what I've been saying to you. And then we have what's maybe more distressing is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is this couple. And they, there was a thing going on in this time where people were selling their property and they were bringing it to the apostles and the apostles were divvying it up as they saw fit. And they were doing some sort of like socialist commune Living And so it's important to understand that that was descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay, because later Paul has to take up an offering for all the poor saints in Jerusalem. Why? Well, because they sold all their stuff and they quit engaging in the economy and they just sat around hoping everything would be all right. So, So God's called us to be in the world, not of the world. So is it okay as a Christian to have a job and own property? Yeah, yeah all right. So, so you don't need to... You don't, they've, they've tried throughout history to create Christian socialist communes, and it doesn't work. So, so that's not, we're not going to go live in a cave and just share everything, okay? So, I mean, you can if you want to. I don't care, but I'm going <laughs> I'm going to stay here. So they were, selling, they were selling all their stuff, and they were giving it to the apostles. And Ananias and Sapphira, they said, we're going to get involved in this. And they sold a piece of property. And here's the weird part. No, it was not mandated that they had to do this. Nobody told them they had to do it. And, and then they, they agreed together that they were going to tell the apostles that they, they're given all the money. But then they kept some of it back. Which again, there was no reason for them to do that. They could have said, here's 50%. And Peter would have been like, thanks. Right? But, but these guys are like, you know, 
they're, they're, they're trying to get in, ingratiate themselves with the Christian community for whatever reason. And they're, I think they're looking at Peter like he's the next big thing. And they're like, we need to, we need to suck up to this guy. And so they agree together they're going to sell this property and, and, and lie and give all the money to, to Peter. So Ananias goes in there and he says, here's this money. I sold this property for X amount. And, and Peter says, are you sure? And he's like, yeah. And, and Peter says, why, why are you going to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then Ananias drops dead. And then they carry him out. And, and then his wife comes in and Peter's like, now your husband, now she didn't see this happen, and he says, now your husband said you sold the property for X amount. Is that true? And she says, yes. And he says, why did you guys agree to lie to the Holy Ghost? And, and then she dies. And then, and then they, you know, they carry her out. Uh, so <laughs> what are you to make of that? That's a strange story. Various attempts have been made to, to render those not as judgments of God. So people have argued that uh, Ananias and Sapphira died of fear because they didn't understand God's love. That's uh, possible, I guess, but to me it reads just like an Old Testament judgment. I think that's a more honest reading. Uh, so I think that is, a, is a, not the right way to explain it. And even if you did explain it that way, Herod's story, it's, not, it's clear he didn't die of fear because the angel killed him. I mean, that's what it, that's what it says, right? So, so um, what, are, what are we to make of that, even though there's, the new covenant is, is in effect and it still seems like people are being judged for sins? First of all, I just want to point out to you that these are anomalous incidents, meaning they're weird, they're not the norm. And they're recorded because they're out of the norm. Because if you pick up a newspaper, you know, during, in the Jerusalem Times, they didn't write out, you know, 12,000 people lied today and none of them died. Because that's not a good headline, right? It's not interesting. And so these, these uh, incidences are, are weird. And uh, creating a huge doctrine about them, therefore, I think is, is uh, problematic. What people do often in their theology is they'll just read, read a narrative in the Bible and then they'll just, they'll just build theology on that instead of going to clear scriptures that actually teach theology. Um, and, and then I'll also point out that, uh, well, like I said there, thousands of people living in Jerusalem during that time were liars and, and didn't give God glory, and yet they weren't killed. So let's just say, for example, that God is killing people that are liars, which I don't think He is. You still have about a 99.99% chance of not being killed by God for lying. So those are pretty good odds. And sometimes people, sometimes people are, you know, meaning well, but in revival circles, they'll be like, you know, calling for the days of the return of Ananias and Sapphira, which is like calling for the return of days that 99.99% of people are not killed for lying. But, but anyway, it, it was weird because I was, I don't get on Facebook that much anymore, but I was on there last night and I was thinking about this. And all of a sudden this guy showed up on my, my Facebook feed and he was saying, because Facebook knows more about me than my wife. And, and, and so it, it was this guy was preaching, 
And he was saying, you know, when revival shows up, it might not look like we expect. Because people might die. And he was talking, you know, and the implications Ananias and Sapphira. And he was getting really passionate about it, which I like passionate preaching. But, but the implication is, is, you know, the way that we know that revival is really going on is when God starts killing people. I mean, that's how people think about stuff. And you know, you know why people think that? Because, because people back, back in the day thought that way. Because James and John, do you know that Jesus was the ultimate revivalist? And, and James and John are walking by Samaria in Luke 9, and they won't let him go through there because of race, racist reasons. And they're like, Jesus, this town's full of racists. Let's call down fire and burn the thing up. And they get excited. And Jesus is like, guys, no. The Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And if you study the history of revival, what characterizes revival is salvation, healing, deliverance, and people's lives being changed, not, not God killing people. But he was saying, you know, you know, people might die, and people are like, yeah! Which is, you know, interesting. So I just encourage you that, that if you ever minister publicly, that, that, you know, you can get people to amen just about anything. So you don't really want to be swayed by the size of the crowd or how loud people are saying amen. I've been in conferences where somebody gets up and says one perspective, and people are like, amen, and then somebody else gets up and they say the exact opposite thing, amen. Like, well, those two don't actually agree, but anyway. So, <laughs> ironically, most Christians tend to think they're the exception rather than the rule when it comes to something negative. Even if Job was used as a divine plaything between God and the devil, which he wasn't, he's the only person in recorded history that that occurred with. And yet there's lots of people that think they're just like Job. You aren't. I hate to break it to you. Is everybody okay? Okay, so Ananias and Sapphira and, and Herod. How, how are we to explain this stuff in, in light of the new covenant? Well, first of all, you've got to understand this simple principle. Go over to John 3, verse 36. John 3, 36 says, He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. How many of you believe on the Son? Yep. All right, you already have eternal life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What's that mean? It means, it means that God is dealing with people in grace. Yes. And He's not mad at people and He loves people and all this. But there's only one way to be permanently free from fear of punishment, and that's to apply the blood of God to your life by getting saved. Amen. That's simple, right? And so, even though God is a general principle, isn't, isn't punishing people for their sins, if you want to have that assured, if you, you need to enter the covenant. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm not ever going to take my covenant of peace away from you. Well, 
that means you, you enter the covenant. You apply the blood of Jesus to your life by believing in, in Jesus. But if you've done that, then, then you're safe from wrath. Now, that brings up actually a whole bunch of questions that I don't have time to answer today. But on the back of your notes, I, for reasons that are too long to explain here, I don't believe that God can simply kill any non-Christian He wants to at any moment. Um, so I'm not going to... Uh, that's just what I believe. So that's a complicated issue, but I'm not going to deal with it right now. Um, okay, but I, I want to show you something else that shows why even though this happened back then, I don't think it will ever happen again. To explain this, it's going to take a little bit of doing, so I need you to walk with me here. So Hebrews 8, verse 13, this is the end of that portion of Scripture we were just reading. Hebrews 8, verse 13 says this, In that he says, A new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decays and gets old is ready to vanish away. Okay, this verse confused me for a long time because I thought it should say, The old has already vanished away. But it doesn't say that. It says it's old... And it's ready to vanish away. Everybody see that? Now, when did it vanish away? Because that's a really important question. I want you to look back at Luke 11. I know we're going to go to a lot of Scripture, but I'm going to pull on these threads together. I'll make it all make sense at the end. So Jesus is prophesying in Luke 11... And uh, he's, he's saying woe to a bunch of different people. So he's prophesying judgment. He says, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you scribes. And, and you've got to understand, Jesus is he's a, he's a unique individual in history, obviously. But he's doing two things. He's inaugurating the new covenant and he's wrapping up the old covenant. Jesus is a prophet, priest, and king in the old covenant. And he's an apostle, evangelist, pastor, prophet, and teacher in the new covenant. He's both at once, which is, which is why the Gospels are so confusing. Because some of what he's doing is wrapping up the old covenant, and some of what he's doing is inaugurating the new. So, let's read this verse. He's, he's prophesying judgment. He's functioning as an Old Testament prophet. Luke, Luke 11, verse 15 and 51 says, The blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Now when I read this for a long time, I thought what Jesus was saying was that He was about to pay the price for all the sins of all these generations. But what I was doing is I was reading my atonement theology into the text and ignoring the plain meaning. Let's go back to Ezekiel. What he's doing is he's echoing something that Ezekiel said. He's functioning, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, 
they all basically did these same things. If you look at Ezekiel 16, verse 23, it says this, Ezekiel's prophesying, and he says, It shall come to pass after all the wickedness. Woe, woe unto thee, says the Lord. But you see the woes. It's a common thing. Woe, I'm going to prophesy woe. Woe is unto thee, okay? Um, and then he says, uh, You have built an eminent place, and you've made high places in every street. So he, he says, talks about their idolatry. Um, skip down to verse 28. You have played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were unsatiable. Yes, you played the harlot with them and could not be satisfied. And moreover, you have multiplied your fornication in the land of Canaan with the Chaldeans, and you were not satisfied therewith. All right, so that's figurative language. He's comparing the nation of Israel to his like his wife, and she's been unfaithful to him. And he lists two nations that they've been unfaithful with because they've worshipped their gods, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And now what does he say is going to happen because of that? Skip to verse 37. Behold, therefore, I will gather all your lovers with whom you have taken pleasure, and all them that you have loved, and with them that you have hated, and I will, or the, yeah, and I will gather them round against you, and will discover your nakedness, and I will judge you. And as a woman that breaks wedlock and shed blood are judged, I will give your blood in fury and jealousy. And I will also give you into their hand, and they shall trod down your eminent place and break your high places and strip you of your clothes, etc. Okay, it's figurative language. What he's saying is, these foreign powers that you've been going after their gods, I'm going to bring them, and they're going to come destroy you. Did that literally happen? It absolutely did. Assyria came and carried away the northern ten tribes captive, and then later Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem. Why did that happen? Because in Deuteronomy, God wrote out a covenant, and He said, if you go into idolatry, a foreign nation is going to come destroy you. We've been over this, right? And so that literally happened. Well, well Jesus is saying the exact same thing Ezekiel said. He's saying, he's saying you're, you've been unfaithful still, and there's a, a backlog of blood and judgment, and it's going to come upon you. Upon who? The church? No, he said on this generation. He's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. He's, he's, talking, about, he's talking about the law and the judgment that came because of the law. I'll, I'll show you again really clearly. Luke 21, let's go over there. This is, where it'll, this is where I'm worried about losing some of you, so please listen to me. It's important what I'm not saying just as much as what I am saying. All right, Luke, Luke 21. All right, in Luke 21, uh, this is what's called the Olivet Discourse. This is also recorded in Matthew 24, but it's a bit different. But in Luke 21, the apostles are looking out at the, at the temple, and uh, they say this in verse 5, And some of them spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. And Jesus said, As for these things which you behold, the days will come in which there shall not be one stone left on another that shall not be thrown down. Okay, so what he's saying is, you, you guys are impressed with this temple, right? I'm telling you, it's about to be destroyed. 
Not one stone's going to be left on another. In verse 7, they said, Master, when will these things be? When will not one stone be left upon another? And what will there be when the, the sign of these things come to pass? And then he lists a whole bunch of things, and he says in verse, uh, uh, skip down to verse 20, he says, When you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh, and then let them which are in Judea flee unto the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart thereof, and let, etc. For these are the days of vengeance, that all this may be written. Okay, now I want to stop there. Because most of you probably, when you read this kind of scripture, you read Matthew 24, you jump immediately to an eschatological event, something at the end of time. Okay? And what I want you to understand is that we're not, today, we are not talking about the future. Pretty much all scholars believe that this was at least partially fulfilled in 70 A.D. when Titus sacked Rome, or excuse me, when Titus sacked Jerusalem. Because in 70 A.D., Titus came in there and he did literally what Jesus said he was going to do. He made it to where there was not one stone left upon another in Jerusalem. And Josephus tells us that the Christians during that time, that they took it seriously, and when they saw the Roman armies around there, they fled. And not one of them died in the siege. Like a million people died, but the Christians didn't die. Okay, now, I want to show you that this has no impact on, on your eschatology. So you can believe what I just said there, and, and like everybody actually believes that, but, but some of you are stressed out. So I want to show you Isaiah 7. There's this thing in Scripture called the law of double reference. Now, I wouldn't call it a law. It's more of a principle. Sometimes things have more than one application. But anyway, the idea is that in prophecy, you have an initial fulfillment, and then you have a later fulfillment. And the initial fulfillment prophesies the later one. So it's very likely that in the future, there's going to be another siege on Jerusalem and all that. But let's just, let me just show you in Isaiah 7... What, what, um, th this is interesting. So if you never read the whole Bible, you'll, you'll never notice this. So Isaiah 7, verse 1 says, It'll come to pass in the days of, a or it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, um, uh, king of Judah, that reason the king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not prevail against it. Okay, so. Before you understand any kind of future concept, you want to understand the present. What's presently happening is there's a guy named Ahaz, and he's king of Jerusalem, and king in Jerusalem, and two kings are waging war against him. But they're not prevailing. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim, and Ahaz's heart was moved. He was afraid, and, the, and, the, and et cetera. So he freaked out, which you'd be scared too if there were two kings trying to kill you. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go forth and meet Ahaz, you and, and whoever that guy is, your son, at the edge of the conduit on the upper pool. So he tells him where Ahaz is, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet, and fear not, neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands. 
for the fierce anger of reason in Syria and the son of Remaliah. So he says, don't be scared of these two kings. Everybody with me? They, they say, let us go up to Jerusalem. Okay, in verse 7, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, neither will it come to pass. What won't come to pass? These two kings will not conquer you. That's what it's literally talking about. Now, it says this in verse uh, 10, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord, whether in the depth or in the height above. So you got to understand, back then they didn't have a personal relationship with God. Ahaz didn't have the Holy Spirit living in him. He couldn't just ask God what the deal was. He had to go through an intermediary of this prophet. And the trouble was, sometimes the prophets would be prophesying something different. And I feel bad sometimes for the kings because you got one prophet over here saying something and you got some other prophet and, and it's hard. Which one's right? Because you can't ask God because you don't have the Holy Spirit. So what they would do is they'd get a sign because only God's powerful enough to do a sign in the heavens, right? And so he says, what's the sign that these two kings won't destroy me? That's what he's literally asking. Well, Isaiah says, ask a sign and I'll give you one. And Ahaz gives a hyper-spiritual answer. He says, uh, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. So he's being, he's being overly holy, okay? So what he's, what he's saying is, is like, oh, I don't need, you just decide. And, and God and Isaiah are like, Ahaz, quit, quit pretending. We know you're scared. Just, just tell us what sign you want and we'll do it, okay? But, but anyway, now notice this. Here now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary me, but will you also weary my God? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Now, here's the part where you're familiar with. What's the sign? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and will bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Well, who's that talking about? Well, obviously it's talking about Jesus because Matthew said it was. But read, read verse 15. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse evil and confuse the good. For before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good, the land which you abhor shall be forsaken of both her kings. So what I'm showing you is that in our, in our zeal to understand the latter fulfillment, everybody hear me, in our zeal to understand the latter fulfillment, we miss the first one. The, the first fulfillment is, is that Ahaz is freaking out because there's two kings that are trying to destroy him. And God says, there's going to be a virgin. Now, there's not two virgin births in the Bible. He's saying, there's going to be somebody that's not married. They're going to get married. They're going to have a son named Emmanuel. And before that kid is old enough to choose good and refuse evil, so we're talking about a period of three or four years, these two kings are going to be dead. That's the sign. So what Ahaz is supposed to do is like check the royal rolls, and he's watching to see when somebody named Emmanuel born. Because when that happens, there's only going to be a space of a few more years, and then... And then these two kings that I'm afraid of, they'll, they'll be gone. 
If it doesn't mean that, then what Isaiah said to Ahaz has no meaning whatsoever. Right? So it has an initial fulfillment and a later one. Everybody with me? This happens all throughout the Scripture. All throughout the Scripture. The little horn in, in Daniel. How many of you read about the little horn? It's an antichrist, right? That's what everybody says anyway. So everybody in eschatology believes, now again, you may, many of you may not have heard this, but everybody agrees with this, that the initial fulfillment of that little horn is a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes that came and destroyed Jerusalem, and he, he offered a sacrifice of pig's blood on the altar in Jerusalem. Now, it probably refers to another guy named Nero. And more than likely, it refers to another guy in the future. Everybody with me? So I don't like teaching about eschatology very much because honestly, I have no idea what's going to happen. Okay, so I'm not actually teaching about any of that. I'm just trying to show you that what I'm saying has no impact on that. You can believe whatever you want to about the end times and still believe what I'm saying to you, which is that in 70 AD, there was a judgment that was poured out on the city of Jerusalem. This, to me, appears to be a, a, a clear biblical fact. Jesus said, all the blood of, of Abel through Zacharias that's going to be required of this generation. Well, a generation in the Bible is 40 years. Jesus is about AD, 30, AD 33. Within 40 years, Jerusalem's destroyed. Okay. You say, Pastor, that was a lot of teaching. Yeah, I know. Here's, here's why this matters. After Jesus died and was raised from the dead, the new covenant is enacted. But the Jews don't notice. And most of them are continuing to do the temple sacrifices every day in the temple. The worship is all the same for a 40-year period. Until 70 AD, Titus comes in and not one stone in the temple is left upon another and what was ready to pass away, passes away. In my opinion, this is my opinion, you don't have to agree with me. In my opinion, the Old Testament does not end until 70 AD. It's still in effect. Now there's actually a picture of this in the Scripture. Because Paul says that... The Old Testament is like Ishmael, and this is in Galatians 4, and the New Testament is like Isaac. How many of you have read that scripture? These two are the... And he says, one repre Ishmael represents the Old Covenant, and, and one represents... Isaac represents the New. There was a time period when both of them lived in Abraham's house at the same time. They existed concurrently until God said, get rid of the slave woman and her son. Now, God loved, the, God loved Hagar and loved Ishmael, the people. He's talking about the covenant. Get rid of that old covenant. So there, to me, appears to be a simultaneous period of about 40 years where these two covenants are existing together. And this is why I think we have Ananias and Sapphira and we have Herod. 
Herod was judged because the old covenant is still in effect. It, that's why it reads just like something in the, in the Old Testament. What about Ananias and Sapphira? Well, you'll, you'll recall that the, the disciples had a hard time figuring out which covenant they were in. Is that right? Do we still sometimes have that problem? They had a hard time figuring it out. In fact, Peter was hanging out with, with the Gentiles because he's like, oh, grace, we're all the same. Um, we don't need to divide around race anymore. But then some people came from, from James, this is in Galatians, and Peter quit eating with the Gentiles, and Paul went and chewed him out to his face. And he said, you aren't living uprightly. You aren't living on the right side of the covenant. And I mean, Paul was really confrontational. He probably shouldn't have done it in front of everybody. Descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? So that's what Paul did. So he, he was, he, Peter didn't know what covenant he was living in all the time. And these guys come to him and they lie to him. And he, he reaches for an old covenant model. Judgment for lying. Thou shalt not bear false witness. What's the, God punishes people for that under the old covenant. And Peter reached for it. And the, it, it was still covenantally in effect. And, and Ananias and Sapphira died. That, to me, is the best explanation I've heard of that. Now, what does that mean? It means that in 70 A.D., that whole thing ended. So if you were to reach for that model now, guess what had happened? Nothing. And in fact, this minister I was telling you about, he said, he, he was, said my prayer for 38 years is, God, let me die before I misrepresent you. What he was asking for was the punishment of God if he ever misrepresented him. Well, I, can I tell you as a minister that sometimes I've misrepresented God? I think, it's a, I think it's a high standard to say that you've never for 38 years misrepresented God. Why isn't that guy dead? Because that model is gone. So... That was pretty theologically intense. I hope that helped you. Let's all stand up. The point is this, is that, is that first of all, you need, you need to accept Jesus. We know that, right? That's the only permanent guarantee of, of safety from wrath. But the other thing is, we, the Old Testament has passed away. It has. And so we got to let it go. A lot of people are still holding on to it. And that makes people upset. And I feel bad. I'm not trying to make people upset. But, but you know, Paul made people upset. So it's all right. 